In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Piscatelli, and we are inspired by a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. I'm feeling extremely judgmental today. Thank you. Yes, this is episode number 56. We are still in season three, and the title of this episode should be As the Court Turns, Precedence Be Damned. So as Ray alluded to, as he usually does, it's so good to be back on the air. Um, that's not what he alluded to, but it is good to be back on the air. And what he alluded to is the top of this episode, all about the Supreme Court of the United States and some of its latest, what we would deem, and I'm going to speak for both of us because we were talking a little bit before this episode, um, is a little bit of a wrong turn or if we apply a stoic lens, maybe it's a right turn because it's going to excite the those of us <laughs> that really care about this. I'll, I think I'll jump in and say that what's really exciting to me about this is that this has been on the docket for some for a while, even before break of uh, the summer break. We were looking at this. We were looking at it as a story, and it's almost haunting to relook at it because as you look at it today. We, it's almost like, were we soothsayers? Were we, were we, did we have the third eye? What's going on? Yeah, I would say that was pretty funny because I, yeah, I was looking at this one. I said, this episode's been sitting here since we have a date on here, June 5th. And I kept looking at it and I'm like, actually, this is good to go. It's still <laughs> things, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes Ray and I can see a little too ahead where things are going. Um, but it's not a special power. It's a power everybody has an opportunity to possess. And we'll tell you more about it in another episode sometime. In the meantime, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to start with, we'll start with the lifetime appointment aspect of this because it's really fascinating. I mean, this is one of the characteristics of the Republic that goes back to the Constitution and hasn't been adjusted since the beginning. Um, it's, you know, one of the older pieces of conditions to be applied to the three pillars of our balanced system. Um, so this idea of a lifetime appointment was just to maybe add a little stability, you know, put a little... Uh, I forget what that the term is for sailboats, but sailboats have this really long fin that sticks really deep into the water and it's designed to let them tip at a, an extreme angle. And I think the lifetime appointment, right, it creates enough drag so that the ship doesn't fall over. It counterbalances the tug of the sail. Somebody hopefully is listening to the episode will opine on what that's called because I can't remember. But in any case, the Supreme Court's essentially that part of our system. I mean, they're the only lifetime appointment. They create a huge drag on change. And that was the intent, kind of an anchor, if you will. But um, as time has gone on, things have accelerated and times change. And this is one of the areas that has not changed with the times. 
if we look back to history really quick, um, I, I just want to point out that remember that this court was formed out of the same organization situation that gave us, you know, the what the, the three fourths compromise. Um, we, it's the same situation that said we're going to have slavery and freedom in the country, right? Like those things have somewhat reconciled. And I think it's important to note, you've got to remember that if we came from the era where women didn't have rights, women didn't vote, they didn't own property, all of these things have changed around the court, but the court has stayed the same. Excellent point. Yeah, it, it reminded me of the Electoral College, too. That's the other piece these guys rushed <laughs> to get done at the end. Anyway, um, so where we end up today is something the Supreme Court is like more comparable to the supreme leader, the Ayatollah position in the Iranian Republic. I don't know if most Americans are aware, but Iran has a republic. So does Russia. <laughs> um, we, we'll talk about, you know, I'm sure we've talked about the flavors of republic before. But in any case, Iran is a republic and they do elect a president. They probably elect their legislative leaders as well. However, at the top of that entire thing, kind of like England has a king and a queen, or maybe one at a time, they have an Ayatollah, which is a supreme leader. He's a religious leader. He's uh, the leader of their Muslim sect in Iran. And um, basically what he says goes, right? He, <laughs> he kind of gets a lot of sway and he has a lifetime appointment. So here we are. <laughs> the United States is a republic versus Iran is a republic. Um, they have a supreme leader who's religious, and now we have a court of supreme leaders that seem to be supremely religious, <laughs> more so in their decision-making than in the past. So the parallels are really striking um, when you don't change things, right, where, where you end up. So with that note, let's go ahead and slide into our next topic here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the case for illegitimacy. So I think you can tell based on the comparison we opened up with, <laughs> we're going to be talking a little bit about the problems. And of course, we'll go into the calls of actions that we have for solutions around the Supreme Court. But let's take a minute and harp on our case for illegitimacy. Why the Supreme Court of today is not legitimate in the sense of us having a, a republic, a representative republic. The Supreme Court today is not in any way representative of the United States at large as a body politic collection of humans. It represents an extreme minority. How did we get here? So the case for illegitimacy calls out the fact that we had two seats we, we, the people of the United States, had two seats on that Supreme Court stolen by a political party, a political party establishment. Okay, normally, up until recent time, you had a very orderly transition of power on the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people in the country who didn't like the fact that we had a black president, and they did everything that they could to keep any stamp of his from leaving a mark on the government, one of those things was to not appoint any of his court um, appointments, to not actually confirm any of his Barack Obama's court appointments. So by the time Obama left office, 
there was 60 or 100 something vacancies at the appellate court level. Um, and then obviously Merrick Garland was nominated to be put on the Supreme Court. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> one of the parties decided they would change the rules. They were just going to behave differently because it was advantageous to them. It was uh, deleterious. It, it was, um, you know, a cost to the system they were willing to make, a cost to us as a people they were willing to make for their short-term political gains. So they withheld an appointment and they kept that seat for themselves. And then later on, um, they would go ahead and push through an additional appointment. And, and just so we can make it extremely clear here, the mechanism they use to block the appointment is the same mechanism they leverage for slavery. You know, it was it was it was the filibuster, which continues to be an overlay, not a constitutional mechanism, not something that should really exist. That mechanism helped enable a split house to block Barack. Obama's presidency consistently. And we have to ask each other, uh, each other as citizens, if the will of the people is to put Barack in that authority, why should the legislative branch have enough power to affect another check or balance? It just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. It's a process. It's like January 6th when we hand the government over. It's more of a, it's more of a ceremony. It's more of a you know, confirm confirmation. Now, I will point out one other thing is that lifetime appointments is across the federal system. It's a problem. So it's not just the Supreme Court. It's almost all federal judges, which is an even bigger issue. So we're not just dealing with the Ayatollah. We're dealing with the Ayatollah and the Ayatollahettes. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's exactly right. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. Oh, Religion now is running amok. So that second seat, I mean, the first seat, you know, obviously was stolen. They put in their choice, choice, choice selection. The second seat as well. Now, the real issue here is that there's two unprecedented things that have happened. One is the political party that had an opportunity to mess things up, chose to do it in spite of us, right? Shoot your toe in spite of your foot. They decided to do that. And then not only did they essentially steal one of those seats when they nominated and they put these people on the court who they selected were not good judges. These were not people that were resoundingly worthy through their accomplishments of being elevated to this bench. <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, they were selected for very specific reasons for specific purposes. Again, back only to politics damn America as an idea and all of the people who live under the promise of freedom and liberty and justice. But you know what? Our group only. It's minority rule. We love minority rule. We're going to put in these religious leaders in the Supreme Court. And that's what they did. We have the most Catholic Supreme Court than we ever have had in history. We're supposed to have a separation. We're supposed to have no state religion, no establishment of state religion. It's right in the Constitution first first and foremost in the amendments, <clears throat> excuse me. And now we see um, the court, which I have to say, it's, I guess it's always been kind of religious, but it was always like not Catholics and it wasn't Jewish people and it was, it was Protestants. America 
up until whatever period of time was always very Protestant, white, male, Protestant. That was the path that got us here, right or wrong. You're not supposed to have a religious test. Well, we always did for some period of time, just because those were the only people that were sharing power among each other, right? This is a very different day. We don't just have white Protestant male elected officials anymore. And we, sh and we shouldn't have, you know, one religious court. Shifting away from Protestantism, Protestants who cared about theoretically the ones who created the Republic, they should have cared apparently more about the Republic is what we're seeing. It would have been nice to see a bunch of Catholics get there and appreciate being treated equally. But no, we get a bunch of Catholics there who want to treat everyone else like they're Catholic in the country. And they're, I mean, there can't be more of an affront to the Constitution than that. Well, there is, but that's just my opinion. Let me get through these next two bullets. Sorry, Ray, and then we'll probably take a quick call to action. Or excuse me, we'll do our, our mid-roll and then we'll come back. Here's one of Ray's favorites, which is why I was saying that Shadow Docket is now operating at an exceptionally high volume, right? So we have stolen seats. We've got religion operating in those seats. And the Shadow Docket is not something we've spent enough time talking about, although Ray has been bringing it up with me for quite some time now. Um, he's always ahead of the curve. But the shadow docket is ramped up under this new regime, this new religious court system. They are pushing more and more through it, which means we see less and less of their decisions. We see less and less of the reasoning behind why they're making decisions. And that's fundamentally the purpose of a court, to come to a conclusion and explain why, to tie it back to the law. The shadow docket allows them to make decisions to make decisions and for the court system to allow actions to be taken without any daylight, without us understanding any of the reasoning behind it or knowing what about the law fundamentally is the basis for the decision. Pretty scary. That sounds very Ayatollah to me. He doesn't need to explain his decisions to anybody. And then in addition to the shadow docket, this court now is just not well enough checked or balanced. It just really isn't, especially when you consider how many in the appellate courts and other federal courts that have had lifetime appointments under the previous administration before Biden, where they were appointing religious zealots left and right. They filled Barack Obama's vacancies with the most religious, least intelligent, least lawful or law-initiated individuals, and they're all relatively very young. They're going to be there for a long time, and that is very scary. You see some decisions now like that. I just want to say, like, uh, just turning to what's going on in the current political climate, if you're watching or listening to this timely at all, you know, there has just recently been a ruling out of Florida, which is a clear example of this miscarriage of justice. And by the way, I've heard that they did it outside. They hunted for that. A friendly, a friendly judge only 70 miles out of where the incident actually happened. Oh, gerrymandering was just the beginning, was the beginning of the takeover of this system by a political party, which is no surprise. History teaches us this lesson. On that note, 
<laughs> time for us to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Here's a message from our sponsor, Citizen Do Good. As misinformation swirls in the cloud, and we hear the jeers of hate and drumbeats of lies grow louder in the distance, we must fully recognize and commit ourselves to the fact that self-rule requires unrelenting vigilance, an unwavering persistence that puts principle and reason above greed and hate. We place our faith in self-rule as the means to fulfill the promise of freedom and justice for us all. The time is now to deeply re-examine ourselves and our implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of the Citizens Prerogative Podcast, a major partner in spreading the good word about civic love and the power of change for us all. At Citizen Do Good, we want to empower all citizens to participate in their republic in a reconstructive way. With that goal in mind, we need your help to stay on mission and grow this community. Please check out the shop at citizendugan.com. Pick up some specialty merch like a mug, a hoodie, or stickers. You can also help out by adding some goodwill to your cart with a one-time contribution that helps us pay for production and for hosting. As little as $20 goes a long way. We accept reoccurring contributions through Patreon. While you're there, join our newsletter. It's easy and free. You'll get updates every couple of months on all of our antics, not just the podcast. Plus, you'll receive a link to download the Guide to Good Thinking by Citizen Do Good. Please feel free to share any suggestions you have directly through the Contact Us page. Thanks for your support. You know, at this point, we're moving into the mystical part of our our little uh, show here because uh, this is where we get into some of the things that are kind of predictive. Um, And we we won't say it exactly, or maybe we will how it's written, um, but it's just interesting to me as I look into the second segment, this is where we really get into where we were saying, oh, these are the risks. Um, but now um, it's happened. So, I mean, we have clear and present examples. And this is the part where I get a little bit of, like, where are we, where are we telling the future? All right. Yeah, it does feel like the twilight zone when history literally is kind of repeating itself before our very eyes. We really don't have the power of prediction. <laughs> we just have the power to look past, to see forward. And we would encourage all of you to do the same. Or political strategists. You can call me what you want. They call us what you want, but we are political strategists to say the least. I like that. That we can market. Yeah. So as we move into this next section, Ray, it's funny because thinking about the fact that this has been written for quite some time, these were clear and present dangers. And unfortunately, they are coming to fruition. Preventing the states from well-regulating their mission, or excuse me, their militia. So this segment is about reasoning for a clear and present danger. And it's quite clear that the Supreme Court is getting in the way of the states well-regulating their militias. And that is all in the Second Amendment. We will have an episode coming up here soon all about the Second Amendment. So we won't harp on that now. But we thought that was going to be a danger, and it is clearly a present danger. Also, establishing a state religion. Wow. Why do I say that? Well, because the evidence has come out. Thankfully, not all of the decisions are going through the shadow docket. So we were able to see that in the Northeast, I don't remember if it was New Hampshire or Vermont, 
there was a state who brought a lawsuit and they lost. It was from the public uh, Department of Public Education, I believe. I have to look up the information. Long story short, what happened was is that state decided to issue vouchers for school choice. Okay, so parents can decide to send their school, uh, their children to a charter school, and they got vouchers based on their tax dollars, right? Everybody pays money, taxes, property taxes that goes to schools. And if you if you don't have your child attend a public school, this state allows you to take a voucher, theoretically, of those tax dollars you pay and give them to a different school and send your child to this charter school. Well, with the Second Amendment and no establishment of state religion, we have never allowed our pooled collective tax dollars to go to religions. But with this decision, our tax dollars, our property tax dollars, are going to go to private parochial schools. Um, it'll be interesting to see over time where this lands, because right now, they uh, allowed the state or they allow individuals now, according to the Supreme Court, they can take their publicly funded vouchers and give them to a Catholic school or a Christian, private Christian school for their child's education. That's a problem. That's never happened before. This is a recent decision from this court in particular. And time will tell whether or not they were, are equally open to allowing people to put their voucher dollars into Jewish schools or voucher dollars into Muslim schools um, or uh, Jainism schools or Hindu schools or Buddhism schools. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if communities of Christians raise objections in their in their localities, you know, around something like that happening. And will the court side with them? We don't know. But you would think if you're going to allow tax publicly funded schools for one religion, you would publicly fund others. And this is scary because now the government's in the business of funding religious schools. Okay. <laughs> the other area here is removing or reserving rights to privacy. This is a core component of liberty. And um, what they're doing when I say reserving, it's removing or reserving. So it's removing the rights to privacy for those of us who aren't wealthy enough to afford protections that give us that privacy. Um, so I said here that uh, a wealthy minority gets to reserve their rights to privacy, especially if you're a Supreme Court justice. Um, because now you have government-backed protection, right? That didn't used to happen before because the Supreme Court generally didn't step out of line as so extreme as they have now that they're facing threats. And I don't think it's right, but I think it's almost a natural cause and effect in a way, right? You abuse your power on the court, and so the people are going to have a problem with that, um, nobody should live under threat. You know, violence is never an answer. Um, but it's interesting, you know, to see how this is starting to play out and, and quite unfortunate. But ultimately, at the end of the day, whatever causes action maybe is worthwhile. Sure. Miss, miss, it's unfortunate, but some people needed a lesson. And if we've seen anything from the, um, from the right side of the political parties, uh, they doubled down on the abortion. But what we've seen is that 
that, that latest ruling, Roe versus Wade, what we've seen is that they're all backing up. They are misaligned with the American people. And I, I think it's it's good to see that because otherwise that means you and I were on the wrong side of history, right? Right now, what we see is that the courts are inundated with probably extremely wealthy, you know, high net wealth individuals or people of, of privilege that don't really see what the true struggle is. And the fact that this Roe versus Wade situation went down was a clear example that the court had lost its way. Now, just to further explain how this makes it available for the wealthy, ladies and gentlemen, is that the way the court has done this is that there's now a patchwork of abortion rights across the nation. And that affects only the poor, only the people that can't afford to fly their child out of state to a place where they can receive that treatment. So tell me it's not something that's limited to the wealthy. If now the poorest towns in our country are now depressed and cannot receive you know, um, rights as a woman, you cannot receive these rights now, and you're stuck in a small town, what do you do exactly? How do you affirm or how do you take your liberty, your freedom into your hands. And that's the thing that's disgusting. And the reason the elites and the powerful don't care is because they can afford the plane ticket. They can afford the hotel room. It's not hard to see where this is all stemming from and why the rich would let this happen. Why they continue to fund these. Frankly, it's, it's shooting themselves in the foot. Because what the rich risk is that the government moves even further to the right and takes even more of their rights away. But they believe that their wealth will protect them. That's the fool's game that they're playing. Yeah, there's always somebody more wealthy. <laughs> and there's always somebody more powerful. Um, you know, we try to establish those checks and balances in our system, but it can get wonky. We're experiencing wonkiness now, especially when power gets concentrated in political parties and the wealthy, and it's very unfortunate. But yeah, this is a one time, um, I don't remember what episode it was, but sometime in the past we had mentioned, you know, it, it's your freedom depends on what state you live in. And it's only becoming even truer. I mean, I don't even remember at this point what right or, you know, whatever was that, you know, being questioned when I brought that up at that time, but it continues to be true. It's like, what state are you going to be free in this week? You know, and how is it that I am an American citizen of the United States I am a citizen of the national country, no matter what state I'm in. But depending on where I'm physically located, I have more or less rights. More or less, I should say, freedom. That was always the perspective because I was probably talking about marijuana and mushrooms and everything else. So it was like, well, where can you be the most free? Where can you have the most choice? And I, I still equate that, that choice, the option of choice. The more choices I have, the more free I am. And whether, you know, and we talk about affordability as a factor, right? If I can't afford the choices, then the choices aren't mine. They're not a factor, right? I don't feel free because those choices are not accessible to me. And so when we talk about freedom, it is accessibility and availability of choice. This abortion thing is just 
one more drop in the bucket of crazy coming from this religiosity, this huge shift towards manipulating people on mass against their own self-interest. It's and and for control. I mean, I'm sure there's some there's a lot of reasons why people are doing this, but you can see the effects, especially the difference between the poor and the wealthy. Um, and the poor on high, when you look at our statistics, tend to not be majority white in our country. Um, the majority of people who are going to suffer the most under this religious court's crazy decisions is everyone who, you know, can't afford to get out of their state, can't afford to get that service. But that brings, like I started to jump in, but this brings the, the, we've talked about, it brings down the equity for everyone, right? So don't think that there's no purpose behind, don't think it's as simple as religion, ladies and gentlemen. Some people are doing this because they want to bring down the earnings of you they want to have very depressed parts of the countries. So the economic powerful cities always have low wage workers, low skill workers pumping into them to keep the cities, frankly, weight, weighted down. <clears throat> because if we had opportunity everywhere, right, the cities would have to compete and the cities would have to have even better wages. They may have to have better living conditions. Like everything would have to rise because if the towns have opportunity, why the hell are you going to go to a city? A city's going to have to have a high, um, a high um, standard of living, right? To attract people to it. You don't just go to the city because there's no jobs in your town and you got pregnant and there's nothing you can do now and you got to support your family, right? That system of feeding the cities through depressed economies that surround us, it's so disgusting. And all I can hope, Mike, is that it's not nefarious, right? There's not a bunch of fat senators mm. in a room going, ha, 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 you feed our rich states and we'll keep your states. Like, is it that nefarious? I hope not, but actually it just seems too methodical, right? What, what other reason would we keep half of the country in poverty? I wouldn't put it past the authoritarian states, the ones who used to use slavery as an economic model. <laughs> <laughs> and, would, and by the way, yeah, like it, it, it swims way too close to it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it really does. Uh, we we haven't, we actually don't have that much dif- distance from slavery. We've made that case. Okay, thirty-one minutes. Let's get the calls to action. Sorry, hey, this is our first episode back in a while. We're a little rusty, so we hope you're hanging in there with us. I, I would say we're excited to see you. We are excited to see you. There's no rust here. <laughs> Calls to action. You know, I look at these and I don't see, um, I think for individual citizens, it comes down to probably voting. But one of the things we need to do as a group on high is that we need to actually implement term limits, maybe something like 18 years. That's what I've seen suggested to enable presidents an opportunity to point on average at least one in each of their terms. When I say point, I'm talking about the Supreme Court. So in order to adjust the Supreme Court, and honestly, Ray, back to the point you made earlier, it's not just the Supreme Court, it's the entire federal judiciary, the entire, the appellate courts and everything, everything that's a part of the federal judiciary above the states needs to enact reforms. So we need term limits. Here's some statistics. 
the longest serving Supreme Court justice, I didn't even look at the appellates and, and, and lower courts, but the longest serving Supreme Court justice is 36 years. Um, 36 years is a pretty long time as a justice when you started out way before those 36 years to get to that point. <laughs> you know, you're really old. You're by the end of those 36 years sitting there, not to be an ageist, but um well, let's try to put it in perspective. Pretend you had to live with your parents and follow their rule for 36, 36 years. years. 18 sounds a little bit closer. 16 sounds better. That is so wonderful. That's gonna that's great. We'll save that one for marketing. <laughs> Yeah, 18 years is a lot better to live under parental rule than 36. Um, Justice Thomas is about 30 years in and Breyer is about 27, just to give you some context there. Um, Roberts and Alito would be termed out as they're over the six, uh, excuse me, the 18 year mark. Uh, Sotomayor and Kagan are at about 12 and 11 years respectively. So they'd be there for five, uh, for a little while longer. And then the rest are five or fewer years serving. So, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't upend the court, um, crazily. Um, but it's something we would need to do soon if we didn't want to affect it too, too heavily. We also need to expand the court so that we have more voices for the record. Um, I mean, I think, always keep an odd number of justices on the court for the sake of coming to a conclusion. That's the thing the court system is always supposed to do, come to a conclusion, fair or otherwise. Um, so we should just expand it so that there could be more Americans on the court. We can have more perspectives on the court. There's like a lot of different humans in this country now compared to back in the day. I mean, our population has grown and, and we've changed a lot. So it'd be nice to see a little more more voices on the court. We should also have the court set the bar, or we should have the bar set for impeachment based on a clear code of conduct. So today, Congress does have the ability to impeach justices from the court, from the federal bench. They've never done it to a Supreme Court justice. They've only done it to the lower seated um, justices on, on the appellate court and whatnot. Um, so that's one of the things we need to put in place is a very clear set of code of conducts for when they're supposed to recuse themselves and this, that, and the other thing so that when they are doing shady things, they're not recusing themselves. They're making backroom deals. Their wife is a part of, uh, you know, neo-Nazi conspiracy group. We should have clear codes of conduct about these things, about our relationships and, and how we conduct our, our judiciary. And when people violate those because we know humans have a tendency to violate things. That's why we have the law. You can you know, make a clear decision on that and you can impeach that justice and have them removed and replaced. We can do it to, we, ha we have that for the presidency. Why not for a court? Why aren't we using that for court justices? So that's one of the solutions. And then the last one we have bulleted here is to amend the constitution to make the laws clear as to not allow the abridgment of any human citizen's liberty. Part of the reason why Clarence Thomas and others can decide on their whim that Americans don't pay enough attention, in which case we need to take away their rights to wake them up so that they care about their system, which is one of the reasons Clarence Thomas votes the way he does on that court is because he thinks we take things for granted. Kids spend too much time in their phones. These are things he's been quoted on. So he just wants to like shake the tree because we don't deserve all the liberty we enjoy because we don't respect it. And there's truth to that. 
but he shouldn't be taking away people's civil liberties to prove a point. That's very childish. And he's getting to that age where he's probably starting to regress to childhood because that's what happens to all of us. You know, all of us start to regress backwards as we get older. That is a fact. So anyway, I throw that out there not to be a jerk, but just to put facts in the air. I just, I don't think there's any easy way to say it that, uh, but I, I ask my fellow citizens to say like, how often do you get away with not doing your job? How often do you get away with slapping your bosses in the face or saying, oh yeah, you know what? That thing that's been precedence that we do all the time. I'm just not doing it because I feel a certain way or enough of my coworkers agree with me. I mean, I, I am bridging, I, I'm kind of getting towards union-ish here, but I want to be very clear that we all have to do our jobs, right? None of us get a paycheck if we don't do our jobs. We're all susceptible to rules. We all have bosses. We all are accountable. And all I'm saying is that the court is accountable to us. The government is accountable to us. And I hope, one hope is that Americans actually start taking ownership of their system because all you have to do, like Mike said, is vote. It's the strongest way to say, I disagree or I agree with the work you're doing. So if you're gonna start somewhere, leverage that power. We saw how powerful it was in the last presidential election. More people stood up and voted than ever. And if they hadn't, we would have an orange democracy right now or Republic. It probably would be a democracy at this point, but it really becomes it really becomes something that I think all of us need to take ownership of. I, I, I don't just don't know all. I, that's what confused me, Mike. How does everybody have to do their job every day? Have to be accountable to a leader, but then they look at these people in government and say, "Oh, but it's oh, they're just that's silly government." No, that's a really great point, and that's actually a point that even Thomas and maybe some others on the court have made that they can't, they're not beholden to the voters. That's his perspective because we can't elect him out. <laughs> well, we can fix that problem though. <laughs> like you said, we need to vote the people in who are going to change the laws because, you know, it's not, they're, they're not there by religious edict, uh, unlike what they think. They're there because of the laws, the way the laws are written and they can be changed. Right. It's not, they're not, con they're not constitutionally termed in, right? It's just a legal framework. They just have laws around them. That's the well, one thing I'm curious with the difficulty of turning that one back. Yeah. I mean, I have to go back and look, I think term limits, term limits might be an amendment to the constitution. The constitution I think says lifetime appointment. So damn it but, all to hell. So that means we have a really hard lift, but that's why we're here. That's why we're here and we can do it. It's designed to change. It's designed to be amended. We've got a whole bunch of amendments and we'll be talking more about those soon. I think that's going to do us. It's going to wrap. We have been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It was truly impossible to keep this under 30 minutes. <laughs> I think we're going to make it to 40 though. Uh, it's been something that's for sure. For information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendogood.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up our contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. Special thanks to you, our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sample from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty free through Fisley and Studios, Inc.